Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Hormones Demystified, aka HD. HD is a semi-retired endocrinologist who spent his clinical career treating patients in a large, multi-specialty practice. He has trained at two Ivy League institutions, among other well-regarded programs. HD has been named a regional top doctor multiple times, determined by a survey of area physicians that asks, who would you send your family members to for their health care? He blogs anonymously at hormonesdemystified.com. HD has chosen to keep his identity a secret, mainly because his writing is unfiltered and could be perceived as offensive. Out of respect for his employer, as well as for his patients about whom he cares for deeply, he prefers to keep his professional and blogging lives separate. HD emphasizes that he blogs because he cares intensely about helping people, and he hopes that the message of caring is received despite his irreverent writing style. In the episode, HD debunks myths relating to perimenopause, menopause, thyroid hormones, testosterone, cortisol, functional medicine, naturopathy, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from HD. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, HD. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, Brooke. I have been wanting to do an episode debunking a lot of hormone myths, and I love your website. I've read a lot of the articles you post on there, which will definitely direct people to at the end and share where they can find you. But I would love if you could start off by telling us what led you to become an endocrinologist in the first place and then to eventually start Hormones Demystified, your website where you separate endocrinology from quackery. So do you want the political answer or the honest answer to why I became an endocrinologist? 
Let's go honest. Oh, thank God. Okay. Um, <laughs> political takes too much of my bandwidth to, uh, to okay, accomplish good. that. So I guess if I had to explain why I became an endocrinologist, I'd have to go back to uh, just explaining my operating system. I tend to look at everything from kind of a negative perspective. You know, why is this not going to work? The glass is half empty and leaking. That's just the kind of person I am. So uh, I don't know if that's a feature or a bug. It served me well in some ways, but not uh, necessarily in others. So going back to med school, I just, I, I didn't like a lot of what I was doing. I wasn't really enjoying med school. Um, I actually had uh, an orthopedic surgeon chief on my exit interview from that rotation uh, after I told him exactly what I thought of his chief resident and his program uh, and that rotation, which was not good. He, he kind of suggested that perhaps I didn't even want to be a doctor. <laughs> and, you know, so, so that was kind of the theme running through my med school experiences. I, I just, I didn't like OB-GYN. I didn't like pediatrics. There was just so much I didn't like. And I eventually kind of landed on uh, doing a residency in general internal medicine. Um, because you have to do a residency before you do a subspecialty fellowship like endocrinology. But at the time, I just thought, oh, gosh, I, I hope I, I figure this out along the way. So I went and did a residency in internal medicine. And then uh, rinse and repeat, I, I was in my residency for internal medicine. And uh, there was a lot about it that I just didn't really enjoy. And um, I, uh, I wasn't ultimately really sure what I wanted to do. I had a lot of long walks with my wife and she said, you know, maybe you should go to law school. You're, you're kind of good at, you know, argument and writing and you could do something with your medical degree in law school. And I was kicking around all kinds of different ideas. Um, but it was very scary to get off the, the medical train once you're on it, especially with the loans stacking up. So ultimately uh, I, I did a rotation in endocrinology during my residency, and um, there were things about it that I liked. Uh, the diabetes aspect seemed very mathematical, which for my brain was very appealing. And uh, I think I just had a good experience with the, um, the specialty in general. And, and it also had the advantage of being a good lifestyle specialty, which was important to me. I just don't do well with being woken up in the middle of the night. I'm super grumpy. Mm. And, uh, and not entirely kind to the person on the other end of the phone who's waking me up. And so I, uh, I thought, gosh, this is, this is probably the right thing for, for my temperament. And, you know, I, I seem to be interested enough in it. And it, it was only later during my fellowship that I really started to, to gain uh, a significant interest. And in fact, I, I wasn't even really so interested in diabetes. It, it became more that I was interested in thyroid and, um, and some other facets of the field, uh, even though diabetes originally drew me to it. So that is the long explanation of how I became an endocrinologist. And then why have you found it necessary to separate endocrinology from quackery on your website? Mm. Yeah, pretty early on, uh, even started even during my fellowship in endocrinology, I was already dealing with people coming in who had seen a naturopath and I was gobsmacked by the wacky stuff that the naturopaths were doing. And um, that 
you know, continued into my early career as a practicing endocrinologist, I had people coming in and they were just wasting so much time. They were spinning their wheels. Um, they were spending a lot of money for the supplements and other things that the naturopaths sell out of their office and all the laboratory testing that was not necessarily covered by insurance. And, and sometimes they were frankly uh, hurt by the, the alternative medicine practitioners they were seeing. So, you know, I thought for quite a while, I'm like, God, ugh, this is so in like inefficient, just counseling one person at a time in the exam room. I'm never going to make a dent this way. And I really wanted to try to get to people before they get to the exam room and before they're so invested in the, the treatment protocol that they've embarked on with their alt med provider. So, um, I just thought, wow, I should, I should do something. <laughs> I didn't really know what to do. And then I thought for a long time I should start a blog, but I, I just didn't have the, the time or the, the mental energy to pursue something like that. And then uh, at some point I cut back a little bit at work and I found myself with more mental energy and more time. And I just did it and I started writing. How many years have you been doing the blog now? So I started it in 2017. I would say the last couple of years, my posts have been a little more sporadic. Uh, so I think for for a while there, I was fairly regular with at least you know one or two posts a month, um, if not more. But uh, wow. yeah, that's where I'm at now. And then kind of a cool facet of you is we're calling you HD, which is short for Hormones Demystified, which is your blog, but you have chosen to remain anonymous. So can you share why that is? Yeah. So as soon as I started writing, I, it wasn't my intention to write in the style that I write, which um, the generous interpretation would be irreverent. The less generous <laughs> evaluation of my style would be a little offensive sometimes. Um, but it just, it kind of came out that way. And, and that's, that was just how it was fun for me to do the project. And, uh, once I started getting more eyeballs on the blog, I also started getting a fair amount of negative commentary. And, and so I, I knew kind of right off the, the bat when I was writing things, I'm like, Oh wait, this may not be well received by everybody. And, uh, so that was sort of the initial idea to to be anonymous. And then as time went on, um, I just realized with all of the, the people who would come to the blog and sort of not really be able to hold two thoughts in their head at the same time that like, yes, he actually really cares about us. That's why he's doing this whole thing. Uh, but yeah, you know, he, he's also a little raw and unfiltered and, and, you know, I don't really love his style all the time, but at least I can sort of separate that from the message and the messenger uh, and, you know, sort of take what they needed to take out of it to, to get the, the good information. Not everybody could do that. And I realized I should, I should just stay anonymous because, you know, I deal with a lot of very sensitive people. Um, and, and I'm actually, you know, I have been known over the course of my career for just being really good at that. Like people would send me their patients who they're like, oh, this person's going to be really tough. And I'm like, yeah, okay, bring it on. And I'm, I'm just really good at being patient and listening and, and all that. And it, it's just, a, my blog is very different 
um, in style from who I am in the exam room. And I, I really didn't want my patients in real life to, um, start reading my blog and, and say, wow, has, has he been faking it with me this whole time? <laughs> you know, is, is he, is he really just judging me and thinking I'm, um, histrionic or whatever, which is really not what I think about a lot of my patients, but, um, yeah, I, I, I just, I didn't want them to, to feel like they were bamboozled by fakery, uh, because right. it's it just, it's, that's not what it is. And then the other thing is that, you know, I just, uh, I, I didn't want to have the whole issue of my employer having to sort of disavow anything that I said as an employee. And it, it just gets complicated when you're part of a large organization. And mm. I didn't want anybody thinking that I was speaking on behalf of the organization. And I've been critical of my organization and the blog without naming them, of course, mm. but I've, uh, I've said some things that, um, that, that certainly were, uh, very critical. Let's just say. Right. I, I mean, social media now can be so great because it can connect all of us in really great ways, but it can also be problematic. And I'm sure you've seen this more now of people calling themselves hormone coaches and, you know, I'll help you with your hormones, not even doctors, not even naturopaths or functional medicine specialists, just somebody who's gotten, you know, like a degree online to say, I can help you balance your hormones. Mm. I would love to know what are some of the most common misconceptions that you see being spread right now about hormones? I'm sure there are thousands, but (laughs) what are some of the top ones that just really irk you? Sure. Well, you mentioned balancing hormones. That's a good one. Hormones don't need balancing. Not a thing for the most part. Um, the body's really great at achieving homeostasis and the vast majority of of people are going to have their hormones doing whatever they need to do outside of certain pathologic situations with certain glands which we can certainly dig into a little bit but the idea that you know people need to go in and get their levels topped off or balanced is is kind of bogus um sort of along those lines keeping it very general and then maybe we can dive into some specifics later the people who come into the office and say, check my hormones, also not a thing. And, mm. you know, and then they, they're kind of like, yeah, just order the panel. Like I'm supposed to know <laughs> what the panel is. I'm like, well, there's you know, probably hundreds of hormone tests that I could order. And most of them are not really clinically validated for anything useful. So, you know, the, the issue is more, what are you concerned about? Are you tired? Are you gaining weight? you have acne, you know, I, I need to actually know what you're looking for in, in order to, you know, quote, check your hormones and sort of taking that a step further. Another huge misconception is that you can just order labs. And the, once those numbers are printed on paper, that they're like, Moses bringing down the stone tablets. And, you know, the, the, these numbers are just you know, infallible or, you know, that they, they actually mean something that's, that's relevant to your health. I think there are really two huge pillars of endocrinology that most people don't appreciate. The first one is you have to know your assay. And the second is you have to know your clinical suspicion. So knowing your assay means you got to understand the blood test itself, like the instrument 
that is running the test for whatever it is, whether it's testosterone or, or any other hormone, um, you got to understand the limitations, you know, does the hormone have a diurnal rhythm like testosterone? Because for that, you have to check it in the morning. If you're screening a guy for low T, for example, um, if you check it in the afternoon, it's probably going to be low because our testosterone levels as men fall over the course of the day. That's just what they do. And the reference range is pegged to a morning level. So there, there are a lot of things like that. And it's true of, you know, almost all the hormone assays, there's, there's something that you need to know about it. That's important, oftentimes more than one thing. And, uh, a lot of, um, lay people are, are not going to know this. And certainly alt med providers don't know this, uh, cause they're, they're really swimming in the shallow end of the pool when it comes to their depth of knowledge. Um, then the other pillar I was talking about is clinical suspicion, also known as pretest probability. So essentially should I even order a test if I think the chance of somebody having that problem is close to zero? So take like adrenal fatigue, which is also not a thing. Um, adren <laughs> adrenal failure or adrenal insufficiency where the adrenal glands really do fail. That, that, that is a thing. It's real. It's, it's super scary. It needs to be diagnosed and treated. But this idea that you can have kind of sluggish adrenal glands that can contribute to a whole host of nonspecific symptoms like fatigue and waking and all that is, is bogus. Um, so if, if I don't think that the person has any real, uh, symptoms of adrenal insufficiency, the real condition, should I start testing for it? And usually the answer to that is no, because what if I get an abnormal value? It's way more likely to be a false positive than it is to be a true positive. So it's going to start taking us down all kinds of rabbit holes that we really shouldn't be diving down. So, mm -hmm. um, so those are, are a couple of the things that are, are misconceptions. Um, if I had to make a few other generalizations, I would say, uh, there's a lot of normal physiology with respect to hormones that is often identified as pathology. So what I mean by that is let's, let's take women who are maybe, um, perimenopausal and they're having some symptoms which might be menopause symptoms or maybe they're postmenopausal. Let's take a postmenopausal woman um, who's who's already at least 12 months after her last period. She's now ha she has a clinical diagnosis of menopause because she hasn't had a period for 12 months. And um, she goes into an alt med provider's office uh, reporting a host of symptoms. And they start doing things like measuring estrogen and progesterone and that kind of stuff. So in a postmenopausal woman, by definition, estrogen and progester progesterone, all the different types of estrogens that you can measure, all that, it's all going to be low um, once you're in menopause. That's just a, a truism because the ovaries are not really producing so much of that anymore. So what's the point, you know, like you measure it and it gets flagged as low. And then you, you have this huge page of all these different types of estrogens that are flagged as low, including uh, things like estriol, which is a placental estrogen um, only produced usually in significant amounts during pre uh, pregnancy. So all these things that just don't make sense. And then the Altman provider flags them as low. And this, this woman says, oh my gosh, you know, doc, I, when, when she comes into my office, doc, I'm falling apart. Look at all these low things. And I'm like, yeah, that's normal, normal physiology. 
It's not pathology. Now, it doesn't mean that she's not having symptoms. It doesn't mean that those symptoms might not be menopausal symptoms. Totally, they could be, but we're going to treat that totally um, irrespective of what these lab tests look like. There's no reason to measure lab tests for that type of situation. So um, that's a huge one, identifying normal physiology as pathology. And then if I haven't sort of burned out everyone's attention span too much, there's there's one more sort of general thing that I can think of uh, just sort of off the top of my head here. There, There's a bi-directional relationship between many hormones and the conditions that they're related to. So I'll give an example. Uh, take testosterone and abdominal fat. So if a guy gains a whole bunch of weight, um, particularly weight around the middle, that can actually lower testosterone levels through a variety of mechanisms. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that if a guy's testosterone is low, he may be more predisposed to accumulating abdominal fat. So there's a bi-directional relationship there. But because not everyone, and this is true of a lot of hormones, because not everyone appreciates that there's a bi-directional relationship, they will often mistakenly think that they just need to address the abnormal hormone level to fix whatever problem they're trying to fix. So if they see low testosterone and they have abdominal fat, they'll be like, oh, well, cool. All I have to do is take testosterone and I'm fixed. It's like, well, no, you may have actually gained a lot of weight around the middle for other reasons, which contributed to your low testosterone level. But taking testosterone may not be really a magical cure here. It may, may have a, a very low effect overall. On, uh, so it's more of like a band-aid approach? Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of times just fixing the hormone level, if there's some other factor involved in causing that low hormone level, that's that's not really going to fix the problem. I mean, you know, well, I know we'll probably jump into thyroid later, but as a different example, you know, if your thyroid is failing uh, and you take thyroid hormone, that's great. That's what you should do. Um, but if you've gained a bunch of weight and that's causing your testosterone to be low, well, maybe we should focus on the weight, not as much on the testosterone. Right. Lose the weight first, maybe then monitor the levels and then see yeah. if they were improved at all. Yeah. Because sometimes just weight loss will actually lead to, to bringing it back up. Oh, interesting. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. 
When you were talking about perimenopause or menopause and you were saying estrogen's low, I know that hormone replacement therapy is something that a lot of physicians tout, maybe especially naturopaths or functional medicine doctors getting bioidentical hormones. Is that based on science or is that something that people should be avoiding? So there's a lot in that question. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a, it's a, that's a great question. Um, so to try to keep it tight, um, I would say there's a, there's a few things that Altmed providers, and I'm going to lump naturopaths and functional medicine doctors who can actually be MDs or DOs, um, integrative medicine, uh, whatever. I'm going to lump them all together because they basically all do the same kind of thing. And it's just a matter of branding as far as what they call themselves. But um, the first thing that they do when it comes to testing for hormone replacement in women is they'll, they'll often do all this salivary and urine testing. Mm. So most of those tests are absolutely not worth the paper that they're printed on. They haven't been clinically validated. I think people have a real sort of misunderstanding of, you know, what kind of regulation is out there, you know, governmental regulation for, for the labs that perform these tests. It, the answer is not much. And uh, they can run anything and they can determine these reference ranges almost any way they want. And the, the point is, is that specifically when we're talking about um, hormone replacement for women, there is no correlation between any type of estrogen level, progestin level, or any of the other intermediate hormones along that pathway. There's no correlation between those levels and symptoms. So the, the thing in perimenopause is that you've got these really massively fluctuating levels of, of estrogen. And the part of the reason people have symptoms is probably due to the fluctuations. Whereas in, in menopause itself, the levels are just low. That's kind of after the ovary is stopped producing very much, if, if any at all. But um, point being is that if someone has symptoms, the idea is actually to treat the symptoms with hormone replacement therapy, uh, which works. Uh, and, and I know that in endocrinology, we're sort of obsessively focused on numbers and we love objective data and hormone replacement therapy is one of the caveats to that, where I would say, mm. forget about the numbers. The numbers are kind of worthless, uh, especially when they're sending you to one of those specialized pharmacies that, that does the um, the bioidentical hormone replacement, but first they, they test a zillion urine and saliva tests and, and sometimes blood tests and everything. And, and then they purportedly concoct some sort of, um, uh, pill or gel or, or whatever they're giving you. Uh, that's again, purportedly supposed to balance out your exact deficiencies. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. We basically just use, the dose of estradiol and the dose of progestin that addresses the symptoms. And as far as the bioidentical aspect of it, it's, it's a brilliant marketing strategy. Um, but the reality is that the estradiol that we use as mainstream physicians and the micronized progestin that we use as mainstream physicians, those are 
bioidentical. I mean, if you want to say bioidentical means that it looks to the body uh, pretty much exactly like what the body would have been producing if it was doing it um, at a, a level sufficient to keep symptoms at bay. Yeah, it's it's bioidentical. It it's it's great. So we we actually do use bioidentical hormone therapy, but sort of what bioidentical hormone therapy has morphed into in the alt-med world means we're going to send you to some sort of compounding pharmacy and they're going to concoct uh, some stuff that is not FDA uh, regulated. And you just have to rely on the internal quality control of the the place that's the the pharmacy that's compounding this stuff. And you run into all kinds of problems with that because you may be getting a dose of estrogen that's actually too high, for example, which might put you at greater risk of things like, for example, breast cancer, Mm. uh, if you're susceptible. On the other hand, you might be getting a dose of progestin in your compounded preparation that's too low. And the, the point of the, or at least part of the point of the progestin in women who still have a uterus who haven't had it removed for any reason, the point of the progestin is to protect the uterine lining from the effects of estrogen because estrogen basically causes the uterine lining to build. And if you have unopposed estrogen, meaning just estrogen therapy, no progesterone, the uterine lining will build and build and build and build and build and puts you at risk for endometrial cancer. But if you use a mm-hmm. progestin, it prevents the uterine lining from proliferating in that fashion. So if you're not on enough progestin because your compounded preparation doesn't have enough, but you're getting you know, a normal amount of estrogen or maybe even too much, well, now you're at risk for endometrial cancer. And you honestly have no idea what's in any of these preparations because there's no external oversight. It's just, you know, a mad scientist, sorry for that characterization, but there's, you know, it's sort of a mad scientist in the the back of the compounding pharmacy, you know, uh, putting this stuff together and you don't know what they're doing. And maybe they don't know what they're doing. We just don't know. That's the problem. There have been studies on this. And, and actually one of the studies was a little scary, you know, about the, 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 um, sort of the differences in potencies among all of these different preparations. And some had way too much, some had way too little, and so on. So the thing is, is that we have these great, you know, quote, bioidentical forms of estradiol and progesterone that can be prescribed by your normal physician and uh, in, a, in a way that we know, at least we know, like, what the risks are exactly. And um, that's what I would certainly recommend. I, I don't recommend any testing and I don't recommend any compounded stuff. I think you can also just buy them online yourself, right? And just like treat, aren't, don't they sell bioidentical hormones and things on Amazon? And so people are just self-treating? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not so knowledgeable about no. what you can get on <laughs> Amazon right now. I do know there are other things you can get, which maybe we'll dive into later, like the direct to consumer lab tests, which is another whole rant. Mm. But the um, yeah, it's it's very scary that that people can buy any sort of pharmaceutical or something that you know has the potential to uh, to act as a, as a true pharmaceutical uh, like that online with with no oversight from somebody who knows what they're doing. Right. You mentioned testosterone and possibly a correlation with gaining belly fat. And then we've been talking about perimenopause and menopause. When women enter 
like late forties, fifties, often maybe they'll see an uptick in weight that they can't explain for. And then they'll say, Oh, it's because of menopause that I'm gaining weight. Can you kind of explain which hormonal issues actually do affect weight gain and which ones often are purported as doing so, but don't actually affect weight gain? Sure. Uh, let me start by saying that there is maybe more that we don't understand about weight gain than what we do understand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of the reason why this is a multi-billion dollar industry is because nobody really knows the the best way to do anything when it comes to you know dealing with weight gain and that's why that just leaves it wide open for charlatans and, and people who just sound really confident so i want to tell you i am not confident about uh, a lot of this stuff because we, we just don't know i mean yes people tend to gain weight as they age. Um, in the past, we, we actually attributed a lot more significance to the menopausal transition. There have been, uh, I think, a couple studies in the more recent past that have called into question really how much of the weight gain is related to or, and how much of a, any decrease that we see in resting metabolic rate around the time of the menopausal transition, how much of that is actually due to specifically to a change in something like an estrogen level and how much is just due to uh, other factors involved in aging. So, and the, the interesting thing, I guess, if we're going to take that a step further is, you know, if a, a decline in estrogen was responsible for a decrease in metabolic rate, you might think that giving estrogen would increase the resting metabolic rate. And it doesn't really seem to do that. Uh, so taking estrogen is not really the, the solution to waking. There may be a little bit of a beneficial effect on body composition. And when I say that, what I mean is um, either better preservation of muscle mass or loss of fat around the middle or visceral fat. Um, so you obviously want more muscle, less fat. Um, so estrogen may be a little bit helpful for that. Uh, but the, the effect sizes when they study them are really pretty small. So then the question is that you asked is what are the hormonal issues that people think affect weight, but don't, that was your, mm -hmm. that was your question. So I would say the biggest one is thyroid and hear me out because I know that thyroid does affect weight, but for the most part, people who think that the thyroid, if they do have a thyroid problem, that that explains the majority of their weight problem, um, that's going to wind up being very frustrating for them because they're going to ultimately get their thyroid pretty well fine-tuned but their weight problem is not necessarily going to disappear. Uh, so, you know, it, it, there are obviously going to be a lot of exceptions and caveats, like somebody who presents with raging hypothyroidism that hasn't been treated for a couple of years. And, you know, they've gained quite a bit of weight because of that. Uh, but for the average person who has a, a subtle abnormality of the thyroid that then gets treated with adequate amounts of thyroid hormone, the, the con contribution to weight at that point is is likely going to be pretty close to zero. Um, certainly not not 
very clinically significant. Mm. Uh, I guess one other thing I should say before I get off of the thyroid topic is that there will be plenty of people with the clinical condition of obesity who check their thyroid function and see a mild elevation of TSH, uh, or not necessarily outside the normal range, but maybe like high normal. And I don't know how much uh, you've sort of delved into thyroid stuff in the past on the podcast, but basically TSH is the screening test that we usually use to try to detect hypothyroidism. And that test moves in the opposite direction of thyroid hormone levels. So if someone's thyroid is starting to fail and the thyroid hormone level is dropping, the TSH is a very, very sensitive test and it will go up out of proportion to the drop in the thyroid hormone level. And that's why it's so good as a screening test. Thyroid hormone level drops even a little bit within the normal range, but it's not normal for your body uh, since your body likes to keep the thyroid level in a very tightly regulated portion of the range. The TSH will, will actually jump up quite a bit. So we do see people with obesity who have these, you know, either slightly elevated or high normal TSHs. But when you sort of dig into it a little bit more, they'll often have sort of also a slightly higher thyroid hormone level, the T4 and T3 levels, which are the thyroid hormone levels, those will also be a little bit higher. So there seems to be something about obesity that activates what we call the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, the HPT axis, which basically just means that there's something going on with obesity that's stimulating the hypothalamus to tell the pituitary to make TSH. And then that in turn tells the thyroid to make some more thyroid hormone. So that that often confuses people. Again, it's this whole bidirectional relationship thing. Um, and they'll, they'll often look at those numbers and think, oh my gosh, you know, thyroid is why I have uh, weight gain. And it's just often not the case. So the thyroid can be tied into weight, but, but it's often not. Uh, cortisol is another one. A lot of people think, I mentioned adrenal fatigue earlier as not really being a, a real diagnosis. Um, the thing about adrenal failure or adrenal insufficiency, the actual diagnoses, when cortisol is low because the adrenals are failing and they're not making enough cortisol, people actually tend to lose weight. So it's kind of funny, but not really that funny that... <laughs> Uh, so many people plus alt med providers think that adrenal fatigue has caused weight gain when if they really had adrenal failure, they would be losing weight. So um, while too much cortisol, which is a very rare problem called Cushing's, can cause weight gain, um, or if people are taking some version of cortisol like prednisone, that could cause weight gain. Um, cor low cortisol does not cause weight gain. So, so that's another common misconception. Uh, we kind of talked about estrogen and testosterone. I guess the other hormone I would I would just mention because I've seen this tested by functional medicine docs not infrequently is leptin. Um, I don't want to dive too deep into leptin because it's it's a totally useless thing to start checking, but <laughs> it's a very interesting hormone. It's made by fat cells. It regulates food intake. The, the, I guess the thing that's sort of interesting about leptin and people were super excited about leptin. A lot of researchers were very excited about leptin for a while when they thought that um, being able to make 
synthetic leptin was going to be like this awesome weight loss drug. And uh, spoiler alert on that one, it totally failed. But when, the thing about leptin is that normal weight people or underweight people are sensitive to leptin, but obese people are resistant to leptin. So what happens when your body is resistant to one of the hormones that it makes normally is the body just makes more to overcome the resistance. So if you check a leptin level in someone who is obese, it will be high, but it's just not working great. If you give them even more leptin, it doesn't really make them lose weight. So um, checking leptin levels, I mean, also not, not helpful. We don't really have great clinically validated reference ranges for it, but that's just one where if your functional medicine doc is ordering leptin and then they tell you it's abnormal, great. Okay. What are you going to do with that result? Nothing. Right. When you were talking about hypothyroid, I think so you mentioned if you get it under control, so you're then taking medicine to help level it out. I feel like some people have been diagnosed with hypothyroid and then think this is the cause of weight gain. And then even when they start taking the medication, they still continue to say, I have hypothyroid. Therefore, that's the cause of all my weight gain, even though they're being medicated for it. So are you saying once you're medicated for it at that point, it shouldn't really be causing the weight gain anymore. Other factors would be. So I'm going to put a caveat to, to that because okay. um, I, I would say that it can be hard to optimize people's thyroid replacement therapy. Um, and there may be people who really do need to have a little bit of tweaking to their regimen, whether it's adding in a little touch of T3, known as liothyronine, to their levothyroxine, which is the T4 medication. Um, you know, it might be something like that, or it might just be um, giving them a little bit more levothyroxine. You know, even though their TSH is in the quote normal range, perhaps they would feel better with their TSH in a different portion of the normal range that happens. Have I seen that where it results in like dramatic weight loss? Not so much. So it's, it's more tweaking around the edges, but I will say that I have seen people who are pretty sensitive to small dose changes in thyroid hormone. And, you know, whereas they're really fatigued and feeling like crap and they can't exercise and, don't necessarily have the mental bandwidth to exercise good willpower when it comes to their food choices. You get their thyroid levels optimized and you know they're actually feeling a lot better. So now they're sleeping better, they're eating better, they're exercising more and you know maybe losing weight because of that. It's not necessarily that you know the thyroid fixed everything uh, directly, but there are some downstream effects of getting the thyroid mm -hmm. optimized that can result in in more weight loss. But if you if I had to make a more generalized statement, like, hey, this person's on thyroid replacement, their TSH looks you know fairly reasonable, um, yet they still feel like they have thirty pounds of weight to lose. You know, is tinkering around the edges with their thyroid hormone dose or type of thyroid hormone likely to result in twenty to thirty pounds of weight loss? Absolutely not. It is not likely to do that. But uh, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, not sort of suboptimally treated in other ways. And, you know, occasionally there's, there, there's some stuff that we can do around the edges there uh, with either the type of medicine or just sort of pushing their 
TSH somewhere else in the normal range to, to make them feel optimized. Okay, got it. You also mentioned the TSH test. And so I just got a yearly physical, got all the labs, and they tested my TSH, and they said it's fine. But it's funny because even just like getting that back, I still in the back of my mind, because everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are spreading, you know, that's not enough to test your thyroid and you have to get T3 or reverse T3 and you have to do all these extra tests to be sure your thyroid is fine. What would you say about that? Is a TSH test enough for most people or are there all these other tests we should be doing or are those overprescribed and useless? Well, most of the other tests are definitely overprescribed. Some of them are useless. And the answer to the original question, you know, is it enough is it depends. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, you know, let's, let's take the person who's just having a physical and, you know, feels pretty good. I would argue we probably shouldn't be checking their TSH unless mm. maybe we're talking about a young female of reproductive age who's considering getting pregnant. There are some reasonable arguments to be made for checking that because the whole issue with thyroid treating the hypothyroidism or sort of very mild borderline hypothyroidism in pregnancy becomes an issue for for having the fetus develop optimally but outside of that uh if if somebody's feeling pretty good and doesn't have any particular concerns you know that there's not really a major reason to check the thyroid but if you want to do it every no certain number of years just just to see, that's fine, but just check a TSH. That's more than enough uh, because it's, it's a very sensitive screening test and it's going to detect the most common type of hypothyroidism, which is primary hypothyroidism, meaning that the thyroid's the problem, the thyroid's failing. It's not the pituitary gland that's failing to stimulate the thyroid. It's actually the thyroid that is failing and the TSH will, will detect that. But if we're talking about somebody who's actually got enough symptoms and i say enough because like almost everybody has at least one or maybe two symptoms of hypothyroidism since we're talking very non-specific symptoms you know okay. I mean, you ask anybody on any given day fatigue yep you're carrying a little extra weight totally your skin a little dry uh yeah this winter it kind of is you know i mean it, it just goes on and on from there um but if you have someone who's got enough symptoms, well, okay, now my clinical suspicion, my pretest probability is going up. Uh, okay, well, do you have any family members who have uh, hypothyroidism? Oh, yeah, you know, my mother, my sister, my aunt. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, now my clinical suspicion is going up even more. Do you have any other autoimmune diseases? Well, yeah, I also have um, celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. Oh, okay, yeah. Now my clinical suspicion is through the roof because... Uh, the autoimmune diseases tend to run together and primary hypothyroidism is often autoimmune in etiology. So, um, you know, it's kind of a, a clinical judgment thing where, you know, if I were to get a TSH in someone like that and the TSH was, you know, in the upper portion of the normal range, but still normal, I might very well want to check a couple of additional tests like a free T4 and a thyroperoxidase antibody test uh, to try to really tease this out. Because if the antibodies were positive, I, uh, even with a normal TSH, I might very well uh, start treating that person thinking, you know what, I, I think there may be something going on here. Um, and, I, and I might just want to repeat the TSH on a 
different day. And, you know, it, it also matters what time of day to some extent. If it's, you know, checked super late in the day, it might be a little bit lower than if it was checked earlier in the morning. So uh, TSH has a, a, a sort of a subtle diurnal rhythm like that where, where by the end of the day, like really late in the day, um, it might be a little lower within the normal range. So which could falsely reassure people that it's normal. So, mm. so the, the, you know, it's, it's kind of, I could come up with a, a, an entire string of these. Well, I have a caveat here. I have, what if this, what if that? Um, but to make it more simple, you know, a TSH is usually going to be enough, especially if the clinical suspicion's not super high and the TSH looks really normal and the person doesn't really have a lot of other risk factors for it. But as the clinical suspicion goes up because of all these other risk factors, then I want to start testing some other things. But I do not want to test reverse T3. I'm just anticipating that question. Um, that's a long discussion, but I, I did write a very, very in-depth post. I think it's the only thing on the internet like it. Um, that's why I wrote it, because I, I couldn't find anything about why reverse T3 is so useless. Uh, so if you go to my blog and just type in reverse T3, um, you will see the post that is entitled everything you never needed to know about reverse T3. Um, and then T3 also often not that helpful. There are going to be some caveats to that, but checking okay. T3 levels for someone with hypothyroidism is usually not a helpful thing to do. Well, I'll link that blog post in the show notes too, because that'll be great if somebody wants to dive into maybe somebody has been given a reverse T3 test and is confused by it. So they could dive into that blog post. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.